Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. It's Friday, March 12th. By some miracle, Alex and I are sitting down to record this thing before dinner. We're trying to figure out a new schedule that might work in a world where we can actually get out of the house again on Friday nights. Woohoo! Dare to dream. We are also eager to share our interview with this week's guest, Scott Galloway, who teaches brand strategy and digital marketing at NYU Stern. He also puts out two podcasts, produces a weekly newsletter, and just raised $30 million in Series A funding for his third startup called Section 4, which has a pretty smart offering that I wrote about for TechCrunch this week, but that we talk about in greater detail here. We also dished about venture capitalists behaving badly, so stick around so you can hear who he name checks. Just kidding, (laughs) though he does kind of hate VCs. And now, the news. The wild and woolly world of non-fungible tokens just got a little wackier. On Thursday, a JPEG produced by the digital artist known as Beeple sold at auction for $69 million. The bidding started at 100 bucks, and with seconds to go, the digital file seemed certain to sell for less than $30 million. But a sudden flurry of activity led the auction house, Christie's, to extend bidding by an extra two minutes. In that time, the price more than doubled. The result was the third highest auction price achieved for a living artist, after Jeff Koons and David Hockney. The winner of the auction, a crypto investor using the pseudonym Metacovan, is a co-founder of the NFT collection called Metapurse, which collects NFTs to display in virtual museums. Metacovan owns the largest collection of beeples, and he has also sold fractionalized pieces of the beeples he owns via a special token. To be clear, Metacovan and his partner, Tubadur, have only purchased a long string of numbers and letters on the Ethereum blockchain. They don't have any other rights to the artwork, such as the copyright. Still, Tubadur was positively gleeful about their new acquisition. We made history, and we created a god in Beeple, the crypto investor told CNBC. In other news, Passion Capital, an early-stage venture firm in London, told TechCrunch this week that it plans to crowdfund the final stage of its latest fund. Specifically, it's carving out around half a million dollars for anyone who wants to invest in the vehicle, as long as they're a high-net-worth individual. The firm says it was inspired by developments it's seen here in the U.S. that are opening venture capital to more individuals, from AngelList's rolling funds to a change in a crowdfunding regulation, Reg CF, that on Monday is set to increase the maximum amount that can be raised through a crowdfunding campaign from $1.07 million in any 12-month period to $5 million, a nearly five-fold increase. But if crowdfunding a part of venture funds does become a bigger thing, it's going to take some time. We talked with fund formation attorneys and administrators this week, and they'd barely registered that the crowdfunding limit is about to quintuple. One said he doesn't think it will become a viable fundraising path unless other paths aren't available because of the benefits of having investors who can leverage contacts and expertise for companies. And there are other pragmatic concerns. VCs like to know their limited partners because they call down capital on a deal-by-deal basis and want to know their investors are going to come through with the money. It could also be an administrative nightmare to deal with potentially hundreds of investors for a relatively small amount of capital, as another lawyer noted. 
Crowdfunding VC could also pose complications when it comes to a firm's internal rate of return. VCs actually don't like to have the money sitting around on their balance sheet. They like to call down the capital as they need it because the clock doesn't start ticking on an investment until they do this. Still, unless the SEC puts the brakes on plans that were put in place by the Trump administration, and very soon, Reg CF is changing. And it's probably good to pay closer attention to what ripple effects and opportunities might result. Last week, in a story that we were surprised didn't receive more attention, Bloomberg reported that Coinbase's board has extended CEO and co-founder Brian Armstrong a stock grant that could be worth more than $3 billion. Armstrong already has a stake in Coinbase that is worth approximately $15 billion. The board awarded Armstrong the so-called Founder Grant in order to make sure that he sticks around and helps the company weather its upcoming direct listing and what could be a choppy cryptocurrency market. When the board awarded the grant, Coinbase's fair market share price was estimated to be $23.49. The awards vest in six increments depending on whether Coinbase's average share price over a 60-day period exceeds thresholds ranging from $200 to $400 per share. That may not be too hard to do. In February, Coinbase sold several tranches of stock, totaling 1.8 million shares, at prices as high as $303 per share, and the price of Bitcoin and other alternative currencies is showing no signs of slowing down. Oh, and did I forget to say that Armstrong also has 10 years to hit his goal? Last but not least, we're zooming in on a trend we were reminded of this week, that of companies delaying their funding announcements. This isn't a new trend, but a handful of companies this week seem to take things to a new extreme, including, in one case, a company that announced $40 million in seed funding that it raised from Steve Cohen's investment firm, Point72, back in 2019. I was pitched this story and had to double-check with the public relations person who presented it to me as news. It definitely says something about an outfit that, without any press, can raise capital, hire talent in a competitive market, and secure customers, as was the case with this particular company, which is a cybersecurity outfit called Act Zero. Then again, telling prospective employees and customers that you've raised $40 million in one shot from Steve Cohen, as happened here, is probably proof enough for many that you're onto something. Relatedly, it helps to be a successful serial entrepreneur. In this case, Act Zero's founder, Samir Balotra, previously sold another company to Red Hat. He was a top exec at a separate company that was sold to Google, and he was a senior director for cybersecurity in the Obama White House. Candidly, the world has been awash in funding announcements for so long, and by companies that frankly need the press to get that flywheel going, that it's refreshing when their top priority is not getting press. That said, two years is definitely pushing it, and not everyone interprets dated funding news as a sign of strength. Act Zero maybe didn't need to make a media splash in 2019, and we can't run the experiment now to see how much more excitement its news might have generated if it had. But my guess is that whatever success the company enjoys from here, it might have been bigger if it didn't wait so long. Up next, our interview with Scott Galloway of Section 4. But first, a word from our sponsor. Looking for a great accountant this tax season? Well, it's time to bring your accountant search into the 21st century with Agaris. Skip the search engine and get personalized, curated recommendations from this new matchmaking platform, free of charge. 
Agaris gets you connected to a network of trusted accountants and handpicks three perfect professionals, collecting all the info you'll need to make a choice you can trust. Give Agaris a try at agaris.com. That's A-G-E-R-A-S dot com. And find your perfect match today. And now our interview with Scott Galloway, the famed NYU professor, best-selling author, and tech entrepreneur who sold his last company, L2, to Gartner in 2017. Galloway is outspoken about lots of things, which has attracted both devoted fans and critics, including in Silicon Valley circles. We talked with Galloway about his newest company, Section 4, and about some of that past history. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a treat to get to talk to you. You have this new company, Section 4. What's the impetus for the company? Why did you start the company? Graduate education was transformative in my life and enjoy teaching. So thought there was an opportunity because of the pandemic and changing behaviors to start essentially an online online ed concept that <clears throat> tried to take deliver 50 to 70% of the value of an elite MBA elective at 10% of the cost, 1% of the friction. So we're trying to de- to de- democratize elite business education, and it just put to my background and saw an opportunity. Is this competition for executive MBA programs versus MBA programs? I would say not even exec MBA because part-time MBAs, they get a certification that is still incredibly valuable in the marketplace, and we don't mm-hmm. offer that. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't describe us as competitive with full-time or part-time MBA programs. I think what you could say is that it's somewhat competitive with executive education. The bring 50 people from Pfizer in for two days and charge a bunch of money, have them eat lunch together on campus in Palo Alto and throw some professors at them for some learning. Yeah, I would argue that, that we're competitive with that. It's incredibly expensive, both financially, but just trying to gather 40 or 50 executives. Also, quite frankly, it's a little bit, I don't call it elitist, but it's exclusionary because a company like a Verizon can only send 100 people to Wharton's exec ed. And we're hoping that we can run thousands of people from these companies to our programs. So these are definitely companies that you're dealing with. These are not individuals seeking a betterment for themselves, or is it a mix? It's both. So the funnel is organically people sign up. And the idea is that the course costs seven to $800 versus 7000 which is what it costs to take an elective at an elite business school right now. So, for example, 120 people have organically, individually signed up on their own who work at Google. And then our expectation is over time, these companies will approach us as they are beginning to and say, we would like to buy a certain number of seats or a membership that covers 100 or 1,000 of our employees. So the idea is B2C is top of the funnel and an enterprise solution as we move down the funnel. My understanding is that you've already taught 10,000 students. When did you start offering your programming? March of last year, first course had 300 people. The course I just wrapped up had 1,500. So it scales pretty well. What's different about it is our completion rates are 70 plus percent, and our NPS is averaging about 64. So our goal is what we call 80 and 80. And sort of the curse of online ed is the completion rates are really low because video doesn't capture people or create an intensity. And we try to be a mix of synchronous and asynchronous. So project work and teams, live streams with the professor, live one-on-one sessions with a TA, and in very intense format over two to three weeks, it's meant to hold people accountable and engage them. Some completion rates are literally 10 or 15% at online ed, and ours is right now about 70, and we aim to get it above 80. 
One of the values of a business school education is the network that people create when they're at the school. How do you replicate that experience? I don't think we do to the same extent. I don't think anything can replace going to Cal football games with a group of people and drinking beer with them. So it, there's just no getting around it. We can't replicate it. What we can do is offer some of that. And that is we create a book. They're immediately put into cohorts, into teams. They work together. We're going to try and facilitate meetups. We find some of that is even happening organically. And you see shout outs to their teammates on LinkedIn. So I think we have some of it. But we can't offer it to the same extent as putting two people in a dorm in Tuck. At the Tuck Business School, they live together for two years. So no doubt about it, it's not the same intimate, intense networking experience of a traditional MBA. And you mentioned that you just finished up a class with 1,500 students. I had wondered why there was a wait list, but I guess this is not infinitely scalable because you mentioned there is some one-on-one instruction. Is that the gating factor? There's several gating factors. We try to ensure that the individual gets touched a lot in a live format. And we have Q&A sessions. We have sessions with their TAs where they break into smaller groups. They have teamwork. And even just some of the technologies, Zoom and Slack, start to collapse under the weight when you get into 1,000. So we think of it as a hybrid solution. We use technology scale. My class is 280 kids at Stern, and I think I teach one of the largest classes. So we use technologies to scale it to 700, 1,000, maybe even 1,500. But there's some real friction in here, and I would describe the friction as the value add. If you're in a team meeting with five people, and then you have a live session with your instructor where you get to ask questions, and then the next day you have peer feedback, including a TA who, quite frankly, is sometimes as skilled in this topic as I am, it's scalable, but it's not infinitely scalable. And I think one of the mistakes that online ed has made is it's very VC-driven, trying to imagine anything could scale to a billion people. Well, you don't need that. If you can teach 1,500 people at 800 bucks a pop, you can see that the economics work really well. Maybe it's not infinite, but you can get really strong gross margins while giving people the feel that this is an online, interactive, real-time experience. So it's a mix of the two. We think there's a lot of shades of gray in between all remote or all asynchronous and synchronous, if you will. And you're promising students access to top professors like yourself. I'm wondering how the schools feel about this? I don't know if you've got any HBS professors, University of Chicago professors, but are the schools cool with them? I mean, in a way, obviously, they're helping build the brand of the school, but obviously, in another way, they're competing with their employers. So some yes, some no. Some universities have asked their faculty to take a pause and not engage in any type of relationship like this. Some universities embrace it. So for example, several students who have taken our course have sent us messages saying they are now going to apply to a full-time MBA program because they see the value and they want the certification. So I'm not sure it's purely complimentary, but it's also not purely competitive. And I think some universities see it as a means of providing additional compensation for their faculty. And to be honest, I would say about half our faculty don't ask. They're clinical professors. They make good money, but not great money at the university. And they see this as an opportunity to update their skills, reach a broader audience. And they just say, this is what I'm doing. So it ranges from universities being very supportive of them doing this to universities who have said, this is verboten for the time being. How many professors are teaching classes for Section 4? Right now, we have contracted a half a dozen. I'm the only one of those six who has not received the best professor award at some point at that university. I mean, here's the thing. At every business school, there are what I call five to six ringers. And those are the five or six professors everybody feels like they have to take to get their money's worth. Those are the people we're going after. And everybody knows who they are. And across the top 20 business schools, there's a universe of 100 to 150. And part of the use of the capital here is we want to lock up about 50 of those. 
So the idea is, okay, I can take Sarah Beckman, who went best professor at Haas several times, Sonia Mastriano, who went best professor at Stern several times, Mohan Sami at Kellogg, who's won best professor. But the idea is I can literally get an all-star team of business education at a fraction of the cost. But right now it's a half a dozen. I would imagine it'll be a dozen within 30 days, and hopefully it'll be 50 by the end of 2021. What is your economic relationship with them? What percentage of the revenue do they get? And also, how involved is the company and I guess your CEO, Gregory, in the actual programming? Or do they come to you and say, this is what I can teach? This is how much time I can give you? I'm not going to disclose the exact economic agreement. What I will say is that we see attracting these superstars and retaining them is key to our value proposition. And so our aim, and so far we've lived up against this, this is the greatest compensation for podium hour that they're going to receive. So if you have a course with 800 people and they're each paying 800, that's $640,000. As you can imagine, there is a lot of gross margin capital that can be deployed or can be paid to the professor. And we also surround the professor with TAs and technology such that the literally the only thing they're doing after developing the course, which is difficult mm -hmm. and time consuming, but once that fixed cost is made, they're zooming in two to three times for their lectures and that's it. So our aim, recognizing there are A-Rods, there are Serena Williams, if you will, we're trying to make this not only a, an opportunity to expand their footprint, to teach 10,000 people instead of 500, mm -hmm. and that's a lot for a professor, but also to be the, the best compensation per podium hour that they've ever registered. Can you give us a flavor for what the programming is like and what students can expect to learn and what are some of the practical insights they gain from the programming? Sure. So I teach brand strategy. And the idea is you come at it with a series of constructs and tools to try and build a brand identity, decide where you're going to allocate capital to its best use in terms of building a brand, come up with a series of models for trying to figure out where you allocate capital, how you develop a brand architecture. Adam Alter teaches product strategy. And the notion is what is the filter and the constructs for trying to decide which new products warrant a go versus a no-go, and then what are the critical success factors and a path to increasing the likelihood of a successful product, and then what do you do to iterate around consumer behavior or integrating consumer feedback into product development. Sarah Beckman from Haas is going to be teaching a course in design thinking, so decision-making. We have Rob Siegel from Stanford, who's going to be teaching growth strategies. So how do you manage high growth departments, divisions, or companies? And how is it different than a traditional mindset from coming from, say, a mature company? So it's pedagogical. There's a lot of theory here. But the idea is to create group projects that can, where the output is directly applicable right away to your company. It is MBA-level coursework. It is theoretical. But the idea is the group project is meant to be applicable to your company right away. But right now, we're starting basically with marketing product and strategy courses. We'll probably expand that across more of the disciplines that you would encounter in business school as we hire more professors. And you mentioned both Visor and Google. Are you seeing that most of the people gravitating toward this program are coming from outside of the tech industry, but want to understand better the shifts that are occurring to their industries or not necessarily? So 50 of the Fortune 100 have people who have taken our class so far. And it's all walks. It's pharma. It's big ag. It's big tech. It's big oil. I would say we probably over-index in tech because these organizations are generous in terms of giving them tuition remission. And I think 
to a certain extent, my brand is bigger in the tech community. And initially, that was the awareness we had. We haven't done a lot of marketing here. Our customer acquisition costs have been almost nearly zero so far. But the other big cohort, if you will, is middle market companies, companies 10 to 500 people, where a director there either didn't have the opportunity or the inclination to go back to business school, but still would like a taste of supply chain from an MIT professor still would like to take that course on marketing or platform strategy and understand how Amazon fits into their business. Say they own six dry cleaners, but they want to understand how Facebook or Amazon impact their business. Think about it this way. The American MBA, I believe, is the scarcest product in the world. And what do I mean by scarcity? I mean, awareness and value add relative to the number of people who actually experience it. Harvard MBA, Stanford Wharton MBA are global brands. They're transformative at Haas, we take a kid who's making 70 grand. By the time he or she is out, they're making 140 grand. The total customer base for the top 20 business schools is approximately 8,000 people a year. So what other product has global awareness, is recognized as adding unbelievable value, and its total addressable market is 8,000 people? It should be 8 million. It's personal for me. The Haas School of Business changed my life. That's the reason I'm here with you today. And when I went, it cost a total of $2,000 for two years, and the acceptance rate was much greater. And unfortunately, elite MBAs have just become out of reach, totally impossible for 99.9% .9 of the people. What if you're one of the 67% of people that didn't go to college? Can't go. What if you have a kid and you're a single mom? Can't go. What if you don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars and can't move to Ann Arbor to go to the Ross School? You're out. So we need to lower the bar dramatically and give people access to what, for a lot of us, has been transformational. You talked about moving from 8,000 to 8 million. What percentage of your students are outside of the United States, and how do you see that percentage changing over time? That's a great question. So I think it's about 30% international. And so far, we've had students from 75 countries. We have every continent covered. And we also try to reserve at least 10% of our class for scholarships. We have a rigorous scholarship process. You send us an email saying you can't afford it, and you get a scholarship. And a lot of our scholarships go to people internationally because 800 bucks in Rwanda is real money. So I would say about 30% of our student body is international, but probably 60 to 70% of our scholarships go to international students in developing markets where they just can't afford 800 bucks for a course. Scott, you also mentioned that you're well-known in the tech world and beyond. The Section 4 logo is a picture of your thick black glasses frames. And I just yeah. wondered how involved you are going to be with this startup and whether that hurts or helps the company going forward, depending on how much time you spend on this platform? From the very beginning, I brought in a CEO. I'm a big believer in greatness is in the agency of others. I want to be a solid contributor here. I'm hoping that my class remains really important. I'm very involved at a board level, but it's not my full-time job. We have a management team. We've given away a ton of equity. So spokesperson, figurehead, and then teaching courses and very involved. I mean, I speak to the team every day and I'm very involved in the curriculum development. But yeah, it's not my full-time gig. Also, you teach, Adam teaches. What's New York University's perspective on this? And does the university have a stake in the company? Okay, so let me take those in reverse order. It doesn't, but it will. Once we've closed this financing, I will give them stock. I gave them stock in L2, and it worked out really well for all of us. I always say that Stern is a lot more generous and patient with me than I would be with me. So far, they've embraced my ventures, and I'd like to think they've been a win-win. And that is, I will take a lot of this compensation and give it to NYU professors. Right now, I'm offering the courses for free to any current NYU student. And I also... 
they've been very generous with me. I try to reciprocate that generosity. And so far, I can point to some students who've decided to apply to the full-time program because they like what they're getting here. But there's just no doubt about it. There's a certain level of discomfort. There's a certain sleeping with one eye open. But I'd like to think that it's been a mutually beneficial relationship with my last startup, and I expect it to be a mutual beneficial one with this startup. It's a different offering. I can't give them the certification. I can't give them the career development. I can't give them the in-person experience. It's a different price point and a different product. But so far, they've been very generous and supportive. I think you mentioned something about a subscription product early on. Is that available now or is that something that's coming? Yeah. So if you're an enterprise and you think, okay, I want to give 50 people the opportunity to take any of these courses and not only invest in upskilling them, but also make it less likely they're going to leave to go to business school or just give them the sense that we're invested in their future. And we offer, I think it's $1,200 per seat. So if you wanted 100 seats, it'd be 120 grand. And you can pick 100 people and they can begin any course at any time. And we hope to have a new course kicking off every seven to 10 days. So you might think, oh, I want to do supply chain. I'm busy right now, but it'll launch again in 10 weeks. I want to take product strategy with Adam Alter. That kicks off in, in two weeks. Ultimately, over time, I'm a big believer in the power of subscription business models. And that's where this will head, enterprise subscription. And it'll be based on the number of seats that the institution wants. You are a serial entrepreneur who's been founding companies since the last dot-com boom. You've been venture-backed a number of times, including by General Catalyst, which is one of your backers this time. So obviously you have a good relationship with GC. What lessons from those earlier endeavors and how they were structured have you absorbed and were mindful of in putting this company together? Well, I think we're going to need a bigger boat. Look, I, I've raised probably over a billion dollars for either hedge fund or activist investments. I've probably raised a quarter of a billion dollars for my own startups. General Catalyst, I think, is going to be the last VC I ever raised money from. I raised money from them for my last company. Paul Sagan is a guy I've known for 25 years. He invested in my first company, Red Envelope. He and I are friends. Accuse me of blowing smoke, but generally speaking, I can't stand the venture capital community. I think 98% of them, their value begins to erode the moment the check has been cashed. I am on the record as saying that the venture capital community has been infected with a virus where they conflate luck with talent. So let me just put that out there. General Catalyst, the one action that kind of embodies them for me was when we sold L2 to Gartner, uh, we all did a board meeting and we all congratulated each other. And Paul Sagan said, how do you feel about the equity stakes of the junior employees? And I said, I think they should be more. And he said, well, let's look at the cap table. And he and Larry Bond, the other partner from General Catalyst on my board, we all sat around and we issued new stock that diluted all of us. I've never seen anything approaching that type of behavior from a venture capital firm before. And I don't think I ever will. We pitched one VC firm, General Catalyst. And I said, if they don't do it, we're not raising venture capital. Whatever it is I'm selling, whatever it is my personality is, it doesn't work on Sand Hill Road. It's not been a great relationship for me with VCs in the Bay Area. And, and to be honest, a lot of that is my deficiencies as a manager. Well, for what it's worth, we've talked to a number of people for the podcast who have very similar thoughts on this, including Tim O'Reilly, who you maybe have talked with in the past. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and I saw that you just posted a podcast with Kara Swisher about this, but I was reading a long profile, a great profile of you in Fast Company from the fall. And you were talking about WeWork and how often the valuations that VCs and then bankers assign companies really don't make any sense from a basic math standpoint. And you said, and I'm quoting you, I enjoy and feel an obligation to highlight when VCs are flinging unicorn VCs at tourists at the unicorn zoo. 
I have to say, I'm a little bit worried about this on the SPAC front. It's a leading question, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about SPACs. On the one hand, as listeners know, I and Alex feel like public market investors have been shut out of these high growth companies for too long. On the other hand, the companies that are coming out are so underdeveloped. And I just think this is not good. (laughs) So what are your thoughts? Yes, to all of that. I think the analogy here would be the dot bomb period. And that is some amazing companies survived that and were birthed. That era brought us Amazon and brought us eBay. So we're going to have some amazing companies that are SPACs and that mm. grow on to be iconic firms. We're also going to find out that many, if not the majority, were just overvalued. What's different is that I, I think most of them will survive. I mean, there was some stuff, whether it was Pets.com or Cybershop or ICG, that just made no sense back then. I think most or all of these companies will survive. They won't go to zero, but A lot of these companies, it's difficult to understand how they maintain 70 times revenues multiples. They're not even priced to perfection. They're priced to perfection in an alternative universe. We'll absolutely see a fallout. It feels as if it's already starting. Don't even think of them as a class of companies. Think of it as a financing mechanism where it's no longer the investment committee at Goldman or Morgan or JP Morgan deciding who gets to be public, but a group of operators. And as a means of raising capital, I I think they are going to birth great companies I think it's here to stay as a financing mechanism, but probably a decent investment play would be to go short a basket of SPACs right now. But this is true of the venture community. There's too much capital chasing too few good companies. And one of the things we did with this round is I raised money at a lower valuation than I could have because I was working with people I like. And also, you asked me some of the things I learned. I raised $30 million at a pre-money valuation of $120 million for Red Envelope back in 97 or 98. But what I never thought about as a 33-year-old entrepreneur is, okay, so great. You've talked people into investing at a post-money valuation of $150 million. That means they're expecting you to deliver a company worth half a billion dollars. I never thought through, what does that mean? I thought, well, as long as I can raise money at a crazy valuation because I have a shaved head and a track record, I'm going to do it. Keep in mind, and this is what I would tell entrepreneurs, is that your investors want their money and more back, and you're responsible for delivering that. So don't paint yourself into a corner. Ridiculously high valuations are a double-edged sword. Sometimes cheap capital can pull the future forward, and they're great, and you have a responsibility to previous shareholders to get a healthy valuation. But it's not a bad idea to create a construct where realistically everyone has a good chance of winning. We raised $30 I think we could have raised $100 in this market right now at an extraordinary valuation. We have revenue. Our margin economics are great. It's a hot space. It's better to be lucky than good. We got lucky with the pandemic. But then I thought, and then what? Do I really want to paint us into a corner where it's either IPO at a billion plus or we've failed and we have angry investors? So I advise VCs to leave a little on the table and set it up such that you and your partners have a greater likelihood of success. Because if this thing is successful... It doesn't matter if you raise money at 60 or 80 or 180. Everyone's going to do well. You just don't want to pay yourself into a corner. It's great advice. I'm shocked by how quickly these fundings are coming together and how fast these valuations are escalating, doubling, quadrupling within months. It's like nothing I've really seen except in the dot-com bubble. And of course, we know how that ended. So Scott, before you go, I believe you're in the camp of thinking that tech needs to be regulated. So I wondered if you could share any thoughts about Lena Khan, who Joe Biden has decided to nominate for the FTC. Lena Khan and Tim Wu are role models for me. They're academics. They're super smart. They're fearless. They do their work. They're outstanding professionals, and the world is a better place with them and our government. I'm super excited about this. 
Just a quick question. I'm not familiar with where the name Section 4 came from. Is there a story behind that? I'm a World War II history buff, and there was this thing called Section 8 or Section 9 where the British were planning for the German invasion of the British island, and they were going to foment and plant a resistance. And I saw this as we're resisting higher ed, and higher ed has become the casting, and it's no longer the upward mobility, and we're going to resist. And I don't know. Makes no goddamn sense is the bottom line. I think it sounds cool. (laughs) I think it sounds cool. I mean, you know what it's like? TechCrunch? I mean, how do we come up with this shit? I don't know. And you know what the strategy was, Alex? The URL was available. That was the strategy. That's like the answer half the time, I think. Anyway, well, thank you so much for joining us, Scott. And I guess we'll be looking for you tomorrow on Bill Maher. I saw that's uh, coming up too. Yeah, I'm nervous about that, but I'm excited about it. That's another I love that show. Yeah, isn't it great? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll be excited to see you. Good luck. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. See you next week.